Hello and welcome to the Garage Band Dads podcast. I'm your host, Andrew, and I am a six foot tall George Costanza. Our goal for 2021 is to put out bi weekly podcast episodes focusing on movies and music that turn 20 in the year 2021. The show's going to go on whether I'm podcasting alone or with Blake or with Tim. The podcast theme of albums and movies turning 20 in 2021 is to help me come to terms with my impending midlife crisis as I enter my mid-30s. The first album up for review as we kick off 2021 is Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park. Full disclosure, this album actually turned 20 in the year 2020, but it was the highest-selling album in the year 2001, which is why I've decided to include it in this list. For this episode, I'm going to go over the origins of the band and origins of the album, talk about commercial performance, critical reception, speculate on why this album was so successful, and then talk about their subsequent success and finally reaching a conclusion. So how did we get this album? Linkin Park started as a rap rock band called Zero, and it was started by Mike Shinoda, Rob Borden, and Brad Delson. They were out looking for a new lead singer, and the way they'd apply for a new lead singer is that they would send out a copy of their music tracks with no vocals, and they'd ask prospective lead singers to write lyrics and sing them along to their music tracks and then send it back. After some time searching, they said Chester Bennington was the person who was their missing piece. He he fit in where other singers wouldn't and, and added something to their music that they couldn't on their own. They said that he was the best by far. The name of the album Hybrid Theory comes from their hybridization of rap, rock, metal, hip-hop, combined with music theory. Linkin Park recorded the Hybrid Theory demos and sent it to all the major and independent record labels in Los Angeles, and they ended up performing over 40 showcases for label executives. Unfortunately, they didn't get signed with any. It wasn't until a friend of theirs, Jeff Blue, got a job with Warner Brothers Music and repeatedly pestered Warner Brothers to sign Linkin Park that they got a record deal. How did this album perform? As I mentioned earlier, it was the highest selling album of 2001. It sold over 4 million copies in that year alone. It ended up peaking at number 2 on the Billboard 200 and was certified 12 times platinum in the US and sold over 30 million copies worldwide. This made it the best-selling debut album of all time in any genre, and it beat out Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. It is currently the best-selling rock album of the 21st century. What did the critics think? What was the critical reception? It was mixed, but I would say it was overall positive. Jam said that they mined the best of both both hip-hop and heavy metal, fusing the elements in a clever way that suggests a love of music that goes far beyond fashion. So I will give that to the band Linkin Park. They don't seem like they're a band that's kind of manufactured by the music industry to put out a specific image or capitalize on a popular trend. In fact, the genre of music that Linkin Park fits into, new metal, was started by Korn, Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine way back in the early 90s. And in fact, Linkin Park was kind of on the tail end of that wave of music. The song Crawling would go on to win a Grammy for Best Rock Performance. What is a Grammy for Best Rock Performance, you might ask? When you hear that at first, you might think that it's like a Grammy for the Best Concert or something like that. But what they mean is it's 
the best performance on a recorded audio track, or in other words, it's a Grammy for the best rock record or album. Hybrid Theory has been included in several lists of the best rock albums and made it to the 2006 list of the 1001 albums to listen to before you die. On the other hand, Rolling Stone criticized its corny boilerplate aggro lyrics, but praised their loud soft dynamic and the complimentary vocal styles of Mike Shinoda and Chester Bennington. When I hear the term boilerplate, I think about a boiler, something that's under a lot of heat and pressure, like Rolling Stone's trying to say when they say boilerplate aggro lyrics, like really intense lyrics, but I looked up the term and what they mean when they say that is that it's like a copy and paste. They found the lyrics to be unoriginal or uninspired. I mean, if we look at some of their lyrics, they are not very complex. If we look at in the end, I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. I had to fall to lose it all, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. Or in one step closer, I cannot take this anymore. I'm saying everything I've said before. All these words, they make no sense. I find bliss in ignorance. Less I hear, the less you'll say, but you'll find that out anyway, just like before. Everything you say to me takes me one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break. I need a little room to breathe because I'm one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break. It's hard for me to sit here and criticize these lyrics because I've never had a song on the radio. But you can see these things kind of read like junior high poetry. It's simple rhyming schemes, simple phrases, not a lot of poetic license. Everything here is very direct and straightforward. Not a lot of imagery conjured up or, or you know, imaginative language. It's just very straightforward. It's more like prose with a rhyme scheme. But I would say these simple words and simple phrases are something that made this album so popular. Another thing that made this album so popular is that it was in the right place at the right time. This album had a broad appeal to white middle-class kids who were dealing with stereotypical white middle-class problems of the 1990s. If we look at the core members of the band, we can see how average and middle-class they were. Brad Delson, the guitarist. I mean, first off, he wears those big headphones because he's conscientious about hearing loss. And I mean, a rock star who's worried about hearing loss, that's not something you really hear about very often. I mean, this guy went to UCLA on a scholarship, graduated summa cum laude, and put off law school to start the band. Mike Shinoda, of course, Japanese-American, but raised liberal Protestant and took classical piano lessons starting at age six. He graduated from Art Center College with a bachelor's in graphic design. So when I heard about Art Center College, it just sounded like a goofy community college to me, but really, it has quite a few famous alumni, including Michael Bay, Zack Snyder, Roger Avery, who is a Pulp Fiction co-writer, Ralph McCary, who was a concept designer for Star Wars, Don Burgess, the cinematographer on Forrest Gump, Ryan Church, the concept designer for the Star Wars prequels, Bob Peake, who designed and pioneered the modern movie poster, Ricardo Delgado, who was a comic book artist who worked on Men in Black, The Incredibles, and Apollo 13, and many executives managing design for motor companies like BMW, Ducati, Volvo, and GM. What I'm getting at with this long list of alumni is that Art Center College wasn't a rinky-dink community college. This was a premier 
art college for Mike Shinoda to go to and graduate with a bachelor's degree in graphic design. Rob Borden was from Calabasas, California, a richer suburb than the one that Mike Shinoda and Brad Delson grew up in, with a median family income of $150,000 per year. He didn't attend university, but I mean, Lincoln Park signed when he was 20 years old. His mom was friends with Joey Kramer from Aerosmith, and when he was young, he went backstage at an Aerosmith concert, and Joey Kramer gave him drumsticks and a kick pedal. At the core of this group, you can see these are three upper-middle-class kids with nothing to be angry about playing really, really angry music. So when they talk about Chester Bennington being the missing piece, well, they needed somebody who had a sense of suffering and struggle in their life. If we look at Chester Bennington's biography, his dad was a police detective who worked on child abuse cases and his mom was a nurse. His parents got divorced when he was 11, and unfortunately he was sexually abused by an older kid from the ages of 6 to 13. As a way to cope, he started abusing drugs and alcohol and writing poetry. Throughout high school, he was often bullied. So if we think about what's happening to middle white, middle class kids everywhere in the 1990s, well, 1970, California becomes the first state to pass no-fault divorces, and shortly after, in the 80s, every other state ends up passing no-fault divorce laws. Prior to no-fault divorce, you needed to file a civil action and prove cause to get divorced. You needed to prove something like abuse or infidelity. So by that nature, divorce was often an ugly final step in concluding a relationship. Divorce rates end up increasing year over year, hitting a crescendo in the late 90s. And though divorces were easy to get, I don't think they were stereotypically amicable. The Globe and Mail did a survey with 71% of respondents reporting that their parents' divorce was messy. By messy, they mean it included fighting, name-calling, gossiping, complaining, and custody battles. If you go back to the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, you have a lot of teens who are growing up and going through messy divorces. They're struggling with things like bullying and substance abuse. So the core three members of the band end up putting together these heavy, edgy tracks, but like I said, they lack the tortured artist who is able to write meaningful lyrics. And like I looked at earlier, Chester's lyrics aren't Bob Dylan. They aren't things that students are going to study in high school classes for years to come. But he wrote sincere and honest and simple lyrics about his issues with drugs and divorce, getting bullied and not fitting in. So because his lyrics were simple and easy to remember, and the feeling that he was conveying synchronized with what average kids were feeling all around the country, he ends up being the voice of a generation. The Guardian wrote that Chester's cleanly articulated tales of emotional struggle gave millions a sense that someone understood them, and the huge sound of his band around him magnified that sense, moving listeners from the psychic space of their bedrooms into an arena of thousands of people who shared their pain. This goes back to what we talked about with the Swedish music invasion. Melodic and lyrical complexity don't matter when you're writing music that needs to have mass appeal. What matters is conveying a feeling in a way that helps other people feel what you're feeling. Linkin Park's guitar riffs, drum tracks, and lyrics are all simple, but they all convey an emotion, and that emotion is what a generation of kids was feeling in the late 90s and early 2000s. 
none of Linkin Park's subsequent albums hit the same levels of success. They maintained a similar style, and they continued the new metal craze long after Corn and Limp Bizkit had faded into the background. But why weren't they able to achieve the same level of success after their debut? That same survey from the Globe and Mail found that 50% of recently divorced couples described their divorces as amicable. The idea of an amicable divorce and co-parenting is something that's been emerging over the last few years. There's something unique with marriage and divorce trends among millennials. They believe in amicable separations. They're not staying together until they absolutely despise their spouse and then getting a divorce. They're getting married later in life and waiting until they're in a more stable situation to get married, increasing chances of success, or at least perceived chances of success. They're also having kids later and adding stressors to the relationship later in life. In the last few years, divorce rates have been going down and divorces are getting to be more amicable separations. We can see that in the late 90s and early 2000s, millennials were going through a difficult time. But they got through it and they moved on and they learned from their parents' mistakes and they've been handling marriage and divorce in a lot more productive way. No doubt one thing that helped this generations of kid this generation of millennials get through those dark days was Lincoln Park's hybrid theory. So just to wrap this all up, and in conclusion, I can say Lincoln Park filled a place and gave a voice to millions of kids struggling with broken homes, anxiety, and depression. Hybrid theory defined a generation. Whether you like the music or not, you need to recognize the role this album plays in the history of modern music and modern pop culture. To all our listeners out there, give Hybrid Theory a re-listen. Take a walk down memory lane and write me at garagebanddads at gmail.com and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening and have a good night.